Okay, we are on Rockford Reading, episode 28. I'm bad with keeping up with these numbers. I just looked at the episodes and still can't remember. However, we are reading Race Matters by Cornell West, the 25th anniversary edition. We have two chapters left and then the the out, not outro, but then the uh, epilogue, I believe. Uh, this chapter is entitled Black Sexuality, the Taboo Subject. So let's hop in. Chapter 7. Quote, here, end quote, she said, quote, in this here place, we flesh, flesh that weeps, laughs, flesh that dances on bare feet and grass, love it, love it hard. Yonder they do not love your flesh, they despise it, they don't love your eyes, they just as soon pick them out. No more do they love the skin on your back. Yonder they flay it. And oh my people, they do not love your hands. Those they only use, tie, bind, chop off, and leave empty. Love your hands. Love them. Raise them up and kiss them. Touch others with them. Pat them together. Stroke them on your face. Because they don't love that either. You got to love it. You. This is flesh I'm talking about here. Flesh that needs to be loved. Toni Morrison, Beloved, 1987. Americans are obsessed with sex and fearful of black sexuality. The obsession has to do with the search for stimulation and meaning in a fast-paced, market-driven culture. The fear is rooted in visceral feelings about black bodies fueled by sexual myths of black women and men. The dominant myths draw black women and men either as threatening creatures who have the potential for sexual power over whites or as harmless, de-sexed underlings of a white culture. There is Jezebel, the seductive temptress, Sapphire, the evil, manipulative bitch, or Aunt Jemima, the sexless, long-suffering nurturer. There's Bigger Thomas, the mad and mean predatory craver of white women. Jack Johnson, the super performer, be it in athletics, entertainment, or sex, who excels others naturally and prefers women of a lighter hue. Or Uncle Tom, the spineless, sexless, or is it impotent, sidekick of whites. The myths offer distorted, dehumanized creatures whose bodies, color of skin, shape of nose and lips, type of hair, size of hips, are already distinguished from the white norm of beauty and whose fierce sexual activities are deemed disgusting, are deemed disgusting, dirty or funky and considered less acceptable. Yet the paradox of the sexual politics of race in America is that behind closed doors, the dirty, disgusting, and funky sex associated with black people was often perceived to be more intriguing and interesting, while in public spaces, talk about black sexuality is virtually taboo. Everyone knows it is virtually impossible to talk candidly about race without talking about sex. Yet most social scientists who examine race relations do so with little or no reference to how sexual perceptions influence racial matters. 
My thesis is that black sexuality is a taboo subject in white and black America and that a candid dialogue about black sexuality between and within these communities is requisite for healthy race relations in America. The major cultural impact of the 1960s was not to demystify black sexuality, but rather to make black bodies more accessible to white bodies on an equal basis. The history of such access up to that time was primarily one of brutal white rape and ugly white abuse. The Afro-Americanization of white youth, given the disproportionate black role in popular music and athletics, has put white kids in closer contact with their own bodies and facilitated more humane interaction with black people. Listening to Motown records in the 60s or dancing to hip-hop music in the 90s may not lead one to question the sexual myths of black women and men, but when white and black kids buy the same billboard hits and laud the same athletic heroes, the result is often a shared cultural space where some humane interaction takes place. This subterranean cultural content of interracial interaction increased during the 1970s and 1980s, even as racial polarization deepened on the political front. We miss much of what goes on in the complex development of race relations in America if we focus solely on the racial card played by the Republican Party and overlook the profound multicultural mix of popular culture that has occurred in the past two decades. In fact, one of the reasons Nixon, Reagan, and Bush had to play a racial card, that is, I'd, I've been, I've been straight, bro. I've been straight, bro. Be, yeah, I remember you. Be safe out here. My fault. I'm just in the middle of recording this. Be safe, bro. In fact, one of the reasons Nixon, Reagan, and Bush had to play a racial card, that is, had to code their language about race rather than simply call a spade a spade, is due to the changed cultural climate of race and sex in America. The classic scene of Senator Strom Thurmond, staunch segregationist and longtime opponent of interracial sex and marriage, strongly defending Judge Clarence Thomas, married to a white woman and an alleged avid consumer of white pornography, shows how this change in climate affects even reactionary politicians in America. Needless to say, many white Americans still view black sexuality with disgust, and some continue to view their own sexuality with disgust. Victorian morality and racist perceptions die hard, but more and more white Americans are willing to interact sexually with black Americans on an equal basis, even if the myths still persist. I view this as neither cause for celebration nor reason for lament. Anytime two human beings find genuine pleasure, joy, and love, the stars smile and the universe is enriched. Yet as long as that pleasure, joy, and love is still predicated on myths of black sexuality, the more fundamental challenge of humane interactions remain unmet. Instead, what we have is white access to black bodies on an equal basis, but not yet the demythalizing, the demythalizing, the demythologizing, de demythologizing, excuse me, but not yet the demythologizing of black sexuality. This demythologizing of black sexuality is crucial for black America because much of black self-hatred and self-contempt has to do with the refusal of many black Americans to love their own black bodies, especially their black noses, hips, lips, and hair. Just as many white Americans view black sexuality with disgust, so do many black Americans, but for very different reasons and with very different results. White supremacist ideology is based first and far more white supremacist ideology is based first and foremost on the degradation of black bodies in order to control them. 
One of the best ways to instill fear in people is to terrorize them. Yet this fear is best sustained by convincing them that their bodies are ugly, their intellect is inherently underdeveloped, their culture is less civilized, and their future warrants less concern than that of other peoples. Two hundred and forty-four years of slavery and nearly a century of institutionalized terrorism in the form of segregation, lynchings, and second-class citizenship in America were aimed at precisely this devaluation of black people. This white supremacist venture was, in the end, a relative failure, thanks to the courage and creativity of millions of black people and hundreds of exceptional white folk like John Brown, Elijah Lovejoy, Miles Horton, Russell Banks, Ann Braden, and others. Yet this white dehumanizing endeavor has left its toll in the psychic scars and personal wounds now inscribed in the souls of black folk. These scars and wounds are clearly etched on the canvas of black sexuality. My fault, let me read that for y'all one more time. This white supremacist venture was, in the end, a relative failure, thanks to the courage and creativity of millions of black people and hundreds of exceptional white folk like John Brown, Elijah Lovejoy, Miles Horton, Russell Banks, Ann Braden, and others. Yet this white dehumanizing endeavor has left its toll in the psychic scars and personal wounds now inscribed in the souls of black folk. These scars and wounds are clearly etched on the canvas of black sexuality. Okay, uh, sorry, we got a few things going on in the beginning of reading this. So I want to reflect on those first passages. I think one of the things that uh, again, this is again one of the things that is very unique to Cornell West. Unique to Cornell West writings and speakings is his aspect of examining uh, cultural problems, uh, his aspect of of examining societal problems, and not just merely examining uh, political problems or policy problems or legislation problems, and. Uh, and again, and so in doing that, you know, sexuality is a part of uh, of cultures. You know, sexuality is uh, a part of uh, society. You know, the, these things have a societal. Besides just having societal and uh, communal implications, uh, they are things that in societies and in uh, communities and in cultures and families are. Uh, either spoken about in families that are uh, more open uh, and more uh, transparent when it comes to these uh, these ideas, you know, uh, and 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 as uh, Cornell's pointing out more taboo in uh, families who may be more uh, traditional in their thinking and uh, this isn't as much of a transparent topic. Uh, but I do think that uh, there are some important uh, points to note in here. I think that the uh, the uh, connotations that black sexuality has in the country uh, is something that is important of note there. I think that 
that uh we've seen that manifest itself in uh in in art in some different ways in entertainment i should say maybe not in art but in entertainment uh in ways uh we've seen the sexual uh stigmatization that's been associated with interracial relationships uh change and alter throughout time uh <sighs> mm. And I mean, for the most part as well in here, you know, this is a very, uh, he's broaching the subject, uh, broaching the subject of black sexuality here in the beginning. He hasn't really dived too deep into the subject of black sexuality. Uh, and so I'm still, I, I'm, I'm still processing the things that he's writing about. And I, I really don't have a, too much of a specific thing to uh, point out to, uh, when it comes to this, uh, all right, let's uh, let's keep moving on. Okay. How does one come to accept and affirm a body so despised by one fellow citizen? Okay, let me say this as well. I think that one of the things that uh, is also important to point out is, uh, again, him talking about uh, black self-love and self-hatred and talking about some of the self-hatred and self-contempt uh, that black people have had with some of the physical aspects of their bodies, which have been... Uh, demonized or stigmatized by uh, white supremacist ideology and by mainstream American society and mainstream American beauty standards. Uh, and uh, I think that for sure, take it easy. Uh, I think that that's one of the things that stands out to me as well is uh, the the experience that black people have had because of that stigmatization on their uh, their bodies. Uh, okay. How does one come to accept and affirm a body so despised by one's fellow citizens? What are the ways in which one can rejoice in the intimate moments of black sexuality in a culture that questions the aesthetic beauty of one's body? Can genuine human relationships flourish for black people in a society that assumes black intelligence, black moral character and black possibility? These crucial questions were addressed in the excuse me hold on these crucial questions were addressed in these black social spaces that affirm black humanity and warded off white contempt, especially in black families, churches, mosques, schools, fraternities, and sororities. These precious black institutions forged the mighty struggle against the white supremacist bombardment of black people. They empowered black children to learn against the odds and supported damaged black egos so they could keep fighting. They preserve black sanity in, absurd society, in an absurd society, which racism ruled unabated, and they provided opportunities for black love to stay alive. But these grand yet flawed black institutions refuse to engage one fundamental issue, black sexuality. Instead, they ran from it like the plague, and they obsessively condemned those places where black sexuality was flaunted, the streets, the clubs, and the dance halls. Why was this so? Primarily because these black institutions put a premium on black survival in America. And black survival required accommodation with and acceptance from white America. Accommodation avoids any sustained association with the subversive and transgressive, be it communism or miscegenation. Did not the courageous yet tragic lives of Paul Robeson and Jack Johnson bear witness to this truth? And acceptance meant that only, quote, good, end quote, Negroes would thrive. 
especially those who left black sexuality at the door when they, quote, entered, end quote, and, quote, arrived, end quote. In short, struggling black institutions made a Faustian pact with white America. Avoid any substantive engagement with black sexuality and your survival on the margins of American society is at least possible. White fear of black sexuality is a basic ingredient of white racism. And for whites to admit this deep fear, even as they try to instill and sustain fear in blacks, is to acknowledge a weakness, a weakness that goes down to the bone. Social scientists have long acknowledged that interracial sex and marriage is the most perceived source of white fear of black people. Just as the repeated castrations of lynched black men cries out for serious psychocultural explanation. Black sexuality is a taboo subject in America principally because it is a form of black power over which whites have little control. Yet its visible manifestations evoke the most visceral of white responses, be it one of seductive obsession or downright disgust. On the one hand, black sexuality among blacks simply does not include whites, nor does it make them a central point of reference. It proceeds as if whites do not exist, as if whites are invisible and simply don't matter. This form of black sexuality puts black agency center stage with no white presence at all. This can be uncomfortable for white people accustomed to being the custodians of power. On the other hand, black sexuality between blacks and whites proceeds based on the underground desires that Americans deny or ignore in public and over which laws have no effective control. In fact, the dominant sexual myths of black women and men portray whites as being, quote, out of control, end quote, seduced, tempted, overcome, overpowered by black bodies. This form of black sexuality makes white pass. Make, this form of black sexuality makes white passivity the norm, hardly an acceptable self-image for a white run society. Of course. Neither scenario fully accounts for the complex elements that determine how any particular relationship involving black sexuality actually takes place. Yet they do accent the crucial link between black sexuality and black power in America. In this way, to make black sexuality a taboo subject is to silence talk about a particular kind of power black people are perceived to have over whites. On the surface, this, quote, golden, end quote, side is one in which black people simply have an upper hand sexually over whites, given the dominant myths in our society. Yet there is a, quote, brazen, end quote, side, a side perceived long ago by black people. If black sexuality is a form of black power in which black agency and white passivity are interlinked, then are not black people simply acting out the very roles to which the racist myths of black sexuality confine them? For example, most black churches shun the streets, clubs, and dance halls in part because these black in part because these black spaces seem to confirm the very racist myths of black sexuality to be rejected. Only by being, quote, respectable, end quote, black folk, they reasoned, would white America see their good works and shed its racist skin. For many black church folk, black agency and white passivity in sexual affairs was neither desirable nor tolerable. It is simply permitted it, it excuse me, it's simply permitted black people to play the role of the exotic quote other, closer to nature, removed from intelligence and control, and more prone to be guided by base pleasures and biological impulses.
Is there a way out of this catch-22 situation in which black sexuality either liberates black people from white control in order to imprison them in racist myth or confines blacks to white, quote, respectability, end quote, while they make their own sexuality a taboo subject? There indeed are ways out, but there is no one way out for all black people. Or, to put it another way, the ways out for black men differ vastly from those for black women. Yet, neither black men nor black women can make it out unless both get out since the degradation of both are inseparable, though not identical. Okay, uh, then I think that's a, another sto- a, a good stopping point. Uh, Cornell's going to uh, dive on, on this same subject, but we're from a different aspect. Uh, I, I think that one of the things that is important to point out here is also the difference in in generations i think that generationally uh especially in the generation that i'm i'm in part of um as a 30 year old black man uh and i'm not sure i'm not sure how they call these generations no more what's millennial and gen z and gen x i don't know the generations uh however <laughs> uh i w- i would say for the generation that i'm a part of uh black sexuality has been a much more uh acceptable subject to broach a much more acceptable conversation to have uh i've grown up listening to music my whole life which uh spoke about black sexuality and tapped into black sexuality and uh that music has uh worked as a a conduit to conversations about about black sexuality uh uh, that we live in a, a the information age and with social media uh black sexuality it's not all it's sometimes black sexuality is broached from a subject of uh sometimes black se- sexuality may not always be broached from the most serious uh, places uh or the most serious of subject manners uh but it is something that is a lot more uh in the mainstream to speak about. Uh, and I think you had one of those things, art has been a thing that has been uh, heavily influential in that. And Cornel West spoke about, you know, music and clubs being one of the places where black sexuality was not limited and where uh, black sexuality could be seen uh, on the forefront. Uh, and I do think that because sexuality and, and sex is a part of the human experience and is a part of uh, uh as our society that you cannot run from this type of a subject or you cannot try to put this subject in the closet or try to table this subject uh from and, and not speak about it i think that it is something that needs to be spoken about i think that some of these uh sexual uh violence and sexual assault which exist in our uh society comes from the this lack of speaking about sexuality, this lack of speaking about sex, this lack of speaking about this subject and making it something that's taboo. Uh, and so those are all some of the thoughts that I get out of it. Again, this idea of, uh, again, one of the things that, you know, Cornel West is very good at is adding a cultural aspect to these ideological conversations. Uh, hold on one second. Let me find my spot. Okay. Black male sexuality differs from black female sexuality because black men have different self images and strategies of acquiring power in the patriarchal structures of white America and black communities. Similarly, 
black male heterosexuality differs from black male homosexuality owing to the self-perception and means of gaining power in the homophobic institutions of white America and black communities. The dominant myth of black male sexual prowess makes black men desirable sexual partners in a culture obsessed with sex. In addition, the Afro-Americanization of white youth has been more a male than a female affair given the prominence of male athletes and the cultural weight of male pop artists. This process results in white youth, male and female, imitating and emulating black male styles of walking, talking, dressing, and gesticulating in relations to others. One irony of our present moment is that just as young black men are murdered, maimed, and imprisoned in record numbers, their styles have become disproportionately influential in shaping popular culture. For most young black men, power is acquired by stylizing their bodies over space and time in such a way that their bodies reflect their uniqueness and provoke fear in others. To be, quote, bad, end quote, is good not simply because it subverts the language of the dominant white culture, but also because it imposes a unique kind of order for young black men on their own distinctive chaos and solicits an attention that makes others pull back with some trepidation. This young black male style is a form of self-identification and resistance in a hostile culture. It is also an instance of machismo identity ready for violent encounters. Yet in a patriarchal society, machismo identity is expected and even exalted, as with Rambo and Reagan. Yet a black machismo style solicits primarily sexual encounters with women and violent encounters with other black men or aggressive police. In this way, the black male search for power often reinforces the myth of black male sexual prowess, a myth that tends to subordinate black and white women as objects of sexual pleasure. This search for power also usually results in a direct confrontation with the order imposing authorities of the status quo, that is, the police or criminal justice system. The prevailing, the prevailing culture of crisis of many black men is the limited stylistic options of self-image and resistance in a culture obsessed with sex yet fearful of black sexuality. This situation is even bleaker for most black gay men who reject the major stylistic option of black machismo identity, yet who are marginalized in white America and penalized in black America for doing so. In their efforts to be themselves, they are told that they are not really, quote, black men, end quote, not machismo identified. Black gay men are often the brunt of, talent, of talented black comics like Arsenio Hall and Damon Wayans, Yet behind the laugh lurks a black tragedy of major proportions. The refusal of white and black America to entertain seriously new stylistic options for black men caught in the deadly endeavor of rejecting black machismo identities. The case of black women is quite different, partly because the dynamics of white and black patriarchy affect them differently and partly because the degradation of black female heterosexuality in America makes black female lesbian sexuality a less frightful jump to make. This does not mean that black lesbians suffer less than black gays. In fact, they suffer more, principally owing to their lower economic status. But this does mean that the subculture of black lesbians is fluid and the boundaries are less policed precisely because black female sexuality in general is more devalued, hence more marginal in white and black America. The dominant myth, the dominant myth of black female sexual prowess constitutes black women as desirable sexual partners, 
Yet the central role of the ideology of white female beauty attenuates the expected conclusion. Instead of black women being the most sought after, quote, objects of sexual pleasure, end quote, as is the case of black men, white women tend to occupy this, quote, upgraded, end quote, that is degraded position, primarily because white beauty plays a weightier role in sexual desirability for women in racist, patriarchal America. The ideal of female beauty in this country puts a premium on lightness and softness mythically associated with white women and downplays the rich stylistic manners associated with black women. This operation is not simply more racist to black women than at work in relate. Excuse me. This operation is not simply more racist to black women than at that than that at work in relation to black men. It is also more devaluing of women in general than that at work in relation to men in general. This means that black women are subject to more multi-layer bombardments of racist assaults than black men in addition to the sexist assaults they receive from black men. Needless to say, most black men, especially professional ones, simply recycle this vulgar operation along the axis of lighter hues that results in darker black women bearing more of the brunt than their already devalued lighter sisters. The psychic bouts with self-confidence, the existential agony over genuine desirability, and the social burden of bearing and usually nurturing black children under these circumstances breeds a spiritual strength of black women unbeknownst to most black men and nearly all other Americans. As long as black sexuality remains a taboo subject, we cannot acknowledge, examine, or engage these tragic psychocultural facts of American life. Furthermore, our refusal to do so limits our ability to confront the overwhelming reality of the AIDS epidemic in America in general and in black America in particular. Although the dynamics of black male sexuality differ from those of black female sexuality, new stylistic options of self-image and resistance can be forged only when black women and men do so together. This is so not because all black people should be heterosexual or with black partners, but rather because all black people including black children of so-called, quote, mixed, end quote, couples, are affected deeply by the prevailing myths of black sexuality. These myths are part of a wider network of white supremacist lies whose authority and legitimacy must be undermined. In the long run, there is simply no way out for all of us other than living out the truths we proclaim about genuine, humane interaction in our psychic and sexual lives. Only by living against the grain can we keep alive the possibility that the visceral feelings about black bodies fed by racist myths and promoted by market-driven quests for stimulation do not forever render us obsessed with sexuality and fearful of each other's humanity. And that brings us to the end of chapter 7, Black Sexuality, and brings us to the beginning of chapter 8, which is the final chapter before the epilogue, which is entitled Malcolm X and Black Rage which is one of my favorite chapters I've read from any book. Uh, specifically in the two years I've been involved with the struggle against police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice, uh, but generally uh, in my life. Uh, one of my favorite chapters I've ever read in any book in my life. Uh, so the chapter, and that's, but that is chapter eight, Malcolm X and the Black Rage. We, are fin we just finished chapter seven. Uh, black sexuality, the taboo subject. I want to look to see what we are looking at on time before I get started talking. Okay, we're just reaching 31 minutes. So I'll try to do a, a, 
a decent summarization of the chapter and some of the things I take away from it. Uh, uh, I love the the different aspects of black culture, the different aspects of American culture that uh, Cornell West dives into. Uh, black sexuality is something that I have not read a lot about uh, as a black person who has engaged in uh, uh, sexual intercourse and that has uh, sexual desires just like any other human being. I have experience with uh, black sexuality. Uh, and and so there, I think it's a lot of things that come with the connotations of sexuality that uh, are very subconscious. Uh, I have, uh, I, I do know about black men being castrated heavily during slave period, slave times and post-slavery. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, I've never really, uh, out of all the things that I have taken a lot of time throughout my life to uh, contemplate when it comes to uh, the black experience in America. That is one that I haven't taken a lot of time to contemplate. I think that uh, part of it is, again, because of the taboo subject that is sexuality in our uh, society, in our country, uh, but also because of some of the fears of being as being a black man that comes with black sexuality. I've always, uh, I've grown up with a very strong understanding of uh, of being fearful of being black and being with a sleeping with a with a white woman and uh or dating a white woman or having any interactions with a white woman because of the fears of uh of being accused of rape or being charged with rape or uh, uh being with a white woman and a police come and uh the police uh persecuting you for being with a white woman uh and these are all things that are stories uh or uh, experiences or uh, talking points that are passed down generation after generation after generation of black people because of the uh, commonality that black people have when it comes to this type of uh, uh, these type of dynamics. And so I think that that's a thought that I, I, I pull away from this. I think another thought I pull away from this is wanting to make sure uh, to do to have the concerted effort of having conversations about black sexuality and not pushing it to the margins. Another one of the things that stands out to me is uh, Cornell West talks about uh, the specific experience that black women have uh, in this country, uh, the experience that black women have when it comes to sexuality and how that uh, perceived what the perceived sexuality of black women, how that uh, affects them uh, throughout their experiences in this society. I think one of the things that is important to point out and to note is the importance of uh, of of a generation of young black men coming up that are that don't need to unlearn some of the uh, negative aspects of uh, what can be. Uh, Black of black uh, patriarch, black patriarchy, and of uh, black homophobia and black transphobia, doing the uh, work of not having uh, internal struggles about someone's sexual preference, or not having internal struggles about uh, uh, someone's uh, gender, uh, not having internal struggles about. Uh, people's uh, choices of marriage while we are still dealing with police killing us killing us while we are dealing with mass incarceration while we are dealing with underemployment and unemployment while we are dealing with uh, uh black poverty and understanding how uh 
a black gay man has to deal with the same things that uh, a black straight man has to deal with when the police pull them over. And now, of course, uh, there are specific things to being a black gay man and being a black straight man that each of those individuals or collectives or groups deal with that is different from the other ones but the over the overarching theme of being black is something that is at the forefront of any experience that a person has here uh the same thing you know understand us as black men understanding the uniqueness of the uh experience of black women in this uh country and in this society and understanding the importance of uplifting that experience understanding the importance of giving uh allowing women to give voice to that experience uh and not allowing the things that black women experience to be pushed further to the margins uh and so, in general, that uh, I mean, it was a lot. It was that was a shorter passage, a shorter chapter, but it was a lot of uh, a lot of different subjects that was were encompassed in that chapter. Uh, so, I think that's one of those chapters that I I would have to I need to read a couple more times to really have strong some form some stronger uh, thoughts and uh, beliefs on and stances on, and also just the subject of black sexuality is something that I need to do more learning about uh more reading about more understanding so i think that's where we that's where we're going to end this episode at uh thank you for listening to rafford reading daily uh we are finishing up race matters please if you haven't listened to previous episodes of us reading through race matters please go back excuse me please go back and listen to those previous episodes also if you have not listened to our the first book we read have black lives ever mattered by mamia abu jamal please go back and listen to that as well please share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on like us on facebook follow on twitter subscribe on youtube uh follow us on instagram and remember the social construct of leslie podcast episodes come out every thursday and sunday uh we outside new episode tomorrow